Thank you for that fine singing. Very challenging song if you really think about the words. And it has something to do with the message today. You want to think about redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. Uh, in my days, and maybe still today, occasionally I'm a game player. I like playing uh, board games. Uh, I don't play Monopoly so much anymore. It used to be an old favorite. Kind of fun to uh, be going around the board, collecting properties, making money, and accumulating riches. But uh, a thought came to me that uh, might be somewhat of an illustration for today's message, and that is, what if someone would come to you during the game, or let's say one of the other players, is so envious of your position, of all the properties you accumulated, and all the monopoly money you have, they would offer you cash for it and say, I'd like to take your place. You know, give me your properties, give me your money. You know, here's a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. Would you take him on it? Now, if you are wise, which is what the passage today urges you to be, you would, right? Because at the end of the day, all the monopoly money goes, next slide, in the box. You don't get to keep it. It has no value outside of that game. The money that you collected from your perhaps a partner in the game would have value outside of the box, outside of that game. And that's what we want to think about today, redeeming the time, using the time that God gives us outside of the box that this world is. And that's something that is very possible to do. Look. Uh, 1233, Jesus tells us about it. Jesus told us, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail when no thief approaches, no moth destroys. So this is something Jesus told us to do. He told us to trade in, if you would, the money of this world in return of getting eternal money, or money that has value outside of this world. Now, uh, the verse is about money, and we're talking about time, but that's okay because time is money, right? And um, if I want to, I can use my time, get a job, and I get money. So the two are very much tradable commodities, and if you think about it, money really is our most precious commodity. And it's also the commodity that we all have the same of, right? Each of us as has uh, 60 seconds in every minute. Each of us has 60 minutes in every hour. Each of us has 24 hours in each day. Each of us has 365 days in each year. And each of us will have around 70 or 80 years, according to the Bible. We know some people can live a little bit longer than that. So we all have the same amount of commodity that we can use. And what the passage today urges us to do is use it outside of the box, outside of the world, make it count for eternity. Now, the passage today is a very short one, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk circumspectly. I have a picture here of uh, something called Miharat Akeshet in Israel. It's very close to where I grew up. I, you could actually hike there from the kibbutz I grew up in. And uh, it was a place you would walk circumspectly. So circumspectly literally means to be looking around, right? Circum, that's circumference. Speckly talks about looking. So you're, you're walking carefully, you're looking around. Why? Because on one side there's a cliff, and on the other side there's a cliff. So you're going to be careful as you walk through it. Well, what Paul is telling us here is that this world is like that. This world is like this dangerous path that you're walking on, and you want to be careful. You don't fall on the left, or you don't fall on the right. Now, the evil here, or the danger here, we're told, is that the days are evil. The days are evil. 
There's a passage in 1 John that might help us think about what that means. The days are evil. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world is full of full of things that uh, we can do and spend our time on that have no value for eternity. And in fact, the general way of the world is to do things that have no value, things that God does not appreciate. That's what it means by the days are evil. If we fill our days doing the things of the world, we're doing things that have no eternal value. And uh, First John lists uh, uh, these type of things. Uh, the first one would fall under the title, The Lust of the Flesh. I used to work in a, a company called TMPI, and one of my co-workers was named uh, Vida Farayabi. And whenever she would see a fat donut, well, a donut at all, she would say this, a moment on your lips, a lifetime on your hips. <laughs> and it captures some of the thought that physical pleasures are not long-lasting. Whether it is eating a donut, and you don't have to worry in eternity about your hips because you don't keep your hips either. But, uh, you know, a donut... Uh, this is what the scriptures say about it. The scripture says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 14, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So Paul is talking here about the fact that he can do many things, and it may be legitimate things, but he doesn't want to fall under the power of them. And he's talking about physical, fleshly desires. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, I'm sorry, I skipped verses here. Verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 6, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So the general thought is that of things that satisfy our flesh, whether it's food or sexual immorality, and there's other things in this world that we can think about um, that might stimulate a, uh, a physical, um, we would call it pleasure, uh, could be legal substances and, and things of that sort, and yet all these things will pass away. And because they're passing away, we're told that that's not what we should be uh, going after. We should be giving our life for the Lord, use it for his purposes. Let me, let me go back. I realize I, I forgot to uh, talk about verse 17 in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. I really meant to include verse 17 in there. My apologies to the people behind the uh, curtain. Uh, verse 17 said, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The things that this world is doing are not going to last. The things of the flesh, uh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the things that are passing away with this world, but the man who does the will of God, it says, abides forever. So not only we're talking about believers abiding forever, but the things I do in this world that in a, are, a, are in accordance with the will of God are things of eternal value. They're things that I will value, that God values, and will be valued for all of eternity. As I pursue the things of this world, the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, I'm effectively throwing my life away. Those are things that are not going to last. By doing the things of God, I'm now investing myself, myself 
in things of eternal value that will count for eternity. Um, okay, we talked about the last of the flesh. The last of the eyes is the second item we have in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I used to be, I mentioned I was a game player. It wasn't just board games I liked to play, it was computer games. I would get up early in the morning sometimes, usually it would be on a Saturday. I knew better than doing it on a weekday because I needed to go to classes. And there's some minimum performance that's required if you want to stay in college. But uh, on a Saturday, I would often turn on my computer, start a game. I was especially into a game called Civilization at the time. And uh, I could literally play that game all day long. You know, sometimes skip a meal. Or I could occasionally do that with a book, too. I used to like to read a fantasy book or fiction. It's not that I don't enjoy it now, but I've come to the conclusion it's not how I want to spend all my time. But these things that the world offers you, and that was me, and you may have other things like uh, uh, watching TV, or things that the world offers you for entertainment, and it may be fine if at the end of a long work day I want to just relax a little bit and you know, watch a little bit. There may not be anything wrong with that, but those things will often suck you in and you'll find you spend all your time doing them instead of doing things that count for eternity. Remember, we're trying to walk circumspectly and avoid the cliff on one side and the cliff on the other, and these are all things the world is offering to us as attractive, but we end up falling into them and wasting our life and not doing things that count for eternity. The third one here is called the pride of life. Uh, we like going sometime to uh, Costco for lunch. We, we do our shopping and then we have lunch there. The prices are very good. And uh, yesterday, um, we sat next to a family that has a couple of kids about the same age as our kids. And Joy started a conversation with one of them. And he asked him, how old are you? That's usually the first thing my son wants to establish. And he hopes that he's the older one. Now, this guy was eight years old. Now, my son's just four, but Joy would say, well, my sister, she's bigger than you. She's nine years old. <laughs> my uh, wife takes our kids, our son's swimming on uh, Fridays, I believe. And uh, she saw a license plate on a car in the parking lot, and it said, my granddaughter is cuter than your granddaughter. I've told you in the past that in my job, my title is a characterization engineer. I'm a characterization engineer. Well, that's not true. Actually, I'm a senior characterization engineer. <laughs> Get it right. What I'm trying to point out is the fact that in this world, we keep trying to up one another. This is what the pride of life is about. We want to be better than everyone else. We're trying to keep up with the Johnsons, so to speak. We're spending our time in what may be called the rat race. And uh, what this passage is telling us, it is a waste of time to be in the rat race. Spend your time for eternity. Okay. So how do we spend our time for eternity? We're told that in that last uh, verse in uh, 1 John 2, he who does the will of God abides forever. And so it's not surprising that in Ephesians 5, verse 17, after being told to redeem the time because the days are evil, we're told, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That is the key. If you want your time to count for eternity, you have to do the will of God. If you want to do the will of God, you need to know what the will of God is. So how do we know what the will of God is? Does God speak to us out of heaven and tell us what his will is? Well, the answer is yes. He has spoken to us out of heaven and told us what his will is. This is what we have in the Bible. We're told in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God, who at the various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us 
by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the answer is yes. God speaks to us, and he speaks to us out of heaven, and he does it through his word, the Bible. Now, someone may say, well, the Bible talks about some things, but it doesn't tell us about other things we need to know. That's not true. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know. It says this in 2 Timothy 3.15 through 17, and that from childhood, this is Paul speaking to Timothy in a letter, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the first thing the Bible tells you that you need to know is how to be saved and go to heaven. Right? It tells you everything you need to know about that. That's pretty good, right? just to start with. But it continues, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, listen to this, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This tells me everything I need to know to be complete and for every good work I need to do. Now, I remember being a young believer and walking around in Berkeley and meeting another Christian who knew about me because he knew one of the persons that was involved in me becoming a Christian. And uh, I think he wanted to kind of help me a little bit with my Christian growth. And uh, so he came and he told me how important it is to read the Bible because it's through the Bible that we find out what the will of God is. And I don't, I don't remember why I took that position, because it's not usually something I'm big on, but I said, well, if God wants to, he can speak out of heaven, right? He doesn't have to communicate to me through the Bible. He can speak to me directly out of heaven. And I felt I was taking the most spiritual position in that uh, discussion. I was expressing the greater faith in God because I believed he can speak out of heaven. Now, God is able to speak out of heaven. He's done so in the past, and a lot of it, of course, has been recorded for us in his word, but expecting God to speak to us out of heaven is not necessarily a more spiritual position than expecting God to speak to us out of his word, the Bible. And uh, let me just give you three reasons for that. First of all, we may want God to speak to us out of heaven or out of thin air, so to speak, because we're itching for a miracle. I just want to see some wonderful thing that God does, and that will be exciting for me. That's risky because in Jesus' days, people asked him to show them a sign, and he rebuked them, and he said to them that a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it. So God is not always pleased when we're asking him for a sign. He wants us to believe his word. That's what he's pleased with, faith, not us wanting most signs or miracles. Uh, second reason why it may not be the most spiritual position to say, well, I just want God to speak to me out of heaven, is it could be a sign of laziness. I may not want to spend the time in the Bible I need to to really understand the will of God for me. I want a shortcut. Just tell me, God, what do you want me to do? Well, God wants you to read the book. That's what God wants you to do. Third reason why it may not be the most spiritual position to want God to speak to me out of heaven is it could be a sign of rebellion. I may know what the Bible says, and I don't really want to do what the Bible tells me to do, so I'm going to wait for you know, God to say something different from what's in this book. And uh, that's not going to happen, because the Bible tells us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? So God doesn't change. If he says something in his word, you can count it. In fact, there is a possibility you will hear a voice out of heaven and it'll tell you to do something. And if that happens, you are responsible to check that it is consistent with the word of God because many spirits have come into this world. And they don't all tell you the truth. So you might as well start with this. 
If God chooses to speak out of heaven, he has every right and every power to do so. But he's given us his word, and that is the primary tool he wants you to use to find out his will so that you can do his will and so that what you do counts for all of eternity. We have the word of God. Okay, I finished the passage for today, but I have another half an hour, so we're not done. (laughs) Okay, so we understand we need to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We need to redeem the time, use our time for eternal values, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We understand now how we can find what the will of the Lord is. So let me give you four examples, and obviously this is not an exhaustive list of what the will of God is for you, but here's four good examples in the scriptures of what the will of God is for you. Actually, you know what, I'm going to backtrack. I'm sorry. I keep doing it to myself today. Let me first give you four Four uh, guides or keys to help you understand the will of God out of the Bible. I'm only half finished with that, okay? It's okay. We'll get there. We'll get to the examples. But here's, here's some keys to finding out what the will of God is for you out of his word. Okay, key number one, you need to spend time reading the Bible. Okay, you can't get away from spending If you want to understand what this book says, you have to read it. And you might tell me, well, I don't have time. Well, the cost, so there is a cost, right? But the cost is much higher not to read the Bible than the cost to read the Bible. Because if you don't read the Bible and you don't don't know the will of God, you will spend your entire life wasting your time. So spending... 15 minutes a day, I've been told, will cover the whole Bible in one year. So spending 15 minutes a day reading the Bible gives you an opportunity to know what God's will is for you, which means the rest of your 24 hours is well spent in that case. So key one, spend time. Pay the cost. Key number two, seek his will not your own. John 7, 17 tells us, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Bill used to say this, the key to understanding the word of God is the desire to do the will of God. If I have something I really want to do. I want to, you know, go out with Mary Jane. And so I want to, you know, find out whether that's God's will for me. So I, you know, I open up the Bible and I start reading and I'm looking for God's will. Should I date, you know, go out with Mary Jane? Well, I may not find the will of God for me. <clears throat> because am I seeking the will of God or am I seeking my own will? I'm, I'm really looking for God to verify something that I already want to have. So the key to finding the will of God is to say, God, what is it that you want me to do? Not seeking my own will and trying to find it in the word of God. Number three, ask God to open your eyes. That's one of the prayers we looked at in the passage here. Paul was praying that God will enlighten them, will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. This book is a living book, okay, just because God doesn't speak to us out of heaven or out of you know, thin air doesn't mean that it's not a supernatural thing to understand the word of God. It is still a supernatural thing. It's just that God uses this book to do it. But because it is God that has to do it, you should start by asking God to make you help you understand what the Bible says. It said this about... Uh, Uh, George Mueller, we talked about him a few weeks ago. He's the guy who opened all these orphanages by just trusting in the word of God, (coughs) trusting in God to provide for him. It said about him that he read the New Testament 100 times on his knees. So reading the Bible 
expecting God, asking God to open his eyes and help him understand what the Bible says. Not thinking that I have my own wisdom, but it is the power of God that enables me to understand his will through his word. That was number three. Number four, the last one. Take advantage of the help that God has provided for you. We talked about it a few weeks ago that God gave gifts to the church. And one of the gifts he's given is the gift of teachers. And uh, he gave the gift of teachers to people not so that they can think that they're so smart, but to help the other believers. Remember, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So God has provided for you a resource to help you better understand his word, and he's given it to other people in the church, to teachers, and those can help you understand what the word of God says. Now, you know, thankfully, a lot of this gift that God has given to people, to teachers, they've actually put in word in books called commentaries. So if you don't have a commentary, I would recommend you start with a Believer's Bible Commentary written by Bill McDonald. Most of you know him. And that's very helpful. If you go through the Bible, you find a hard passage, you think it's saying something, but you're not sure, you can turn to a good commentary which has resources that can help you understand the Word of God. So just some tools. This is how God reveals his will. But uh, you've got to spend the time. You've got to seek his will, not yours. You need to be asking him to open your eyes to understand it and certainly take advantage of the help God's provided. 1 Corinthians 3, <coughs> 21 and 23 says this, Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Talking about the fact that God has given you all these resources so that you can have everything you need to know his will. Okay. Examples. Example number one. What is God's will for you? Luke 13, 23 through 28. <clears throat> then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And that's the question. Are there just a few people that are saved and going to heaven? What is God's will on that? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. What is God's will for you regarding salvation? Strive. It's an interesting word. It literally means agonize. And it's a word borrowed from the Olympic Games in Greece. And you've seen the Olympics, or maybe you've read about what these guys are going through, and how all these athletes, the best athletes in the world, are competing and straining every ounce of their body to try to win so they can get the gold. And that's what it's talking about. When asked the questions, are there many who are saved? Strive, agonize to be saved. That is God's will for you to be saved. <clears throat> now, God has provided a way for us to be saved. That's why he can say, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Now, we admit that the gate is narrow. There is one way to heaven. God sent his son. His son died on the cross bearing your sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And that is the only access to heaven. It's through the Lord Jesus. It's a narrow way. <clears throat> but that provision is sufficient for every 
man, woman, and child to get to heaven. There is no restriction by God. It is completely sufficient for everybody to be saved. What is lacking is interest. People are not interested in saving their souls and going to heaven. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but that's the truth. There's plenty of provision in Christ. The way is narrow, but it's fully sufficient. The problem is people do not think it is worth their while. And that is why Jesus says, agonize. Esteem it so important. Give it your all to get to heaven, because if you do, you are sure to get to heaven. But if you don't agonize, if you don't think it's that important, that's when you will not go to heaven. Not because the way is not there, but because you did not think it's important, did not think it worth your while. You did not go after it and received God's provision. <clears throat> now, it's interesting to me that in this passage, the Lord is speaking to people who are familiar with him. And uh, that's important to me because I am here with 80-odd uh, people, didn't count, that are familiar with the Lord. I'm sure all of you are familiar with him. But it's almost bound to be the case that there's more than one out here that is familiar with the Lord but does not know the Lord. Listen to the words Jesus says. Oh, actually, the people are speaking to him. They're knocking in the door. They're asking him to open to them. He says, I do not know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. They're claiming familiarity. We've seen you, Lord. We've been around. And the Lord is saying again, I tell you, I do not know you. So that's my question for you this morning. Do you know the Lord? I'm not asking if you're familiar with him, whether you know about him. Do you know him? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Nicodemus came to Jesus and he says, you know, Lord, we know you must be from God. He was familiar with Nicodemus. But Jesus answered, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There must be a change. When you were born, you did not know the Lord. Now, hopefully you know him, but if that's the case, there should have been some period in your life when you met the Lord and you entered into a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here. Do you know him? First thing I'd like to mention about this passage, perhaps the last one, Jesus is here talking about hell. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourself thrust out. Now I've recently been meeting with a person and trying to go with them through the scriptures because they expressed interest in Christ. In fact, their word was, you know, I, I want to know Jesus because he's such a loving person. And uh, <clears throat> at some point as we studied, we had to cover the fact that God judges people for their sins and sends them to hell. And uh, this person was very offended after that and doesn't want to meet with me anymore. <clears throat> now, when I was in Jews for Jesus, doing some training in street-to-street -street, street evangelism, which is passing people tracts and entering into conversation, they suggested not talking to people about hell because they said this. If you tell someone that they're going to hell, what they hear are the words, I hate you. Now, Jesus is here talking about hell, but it's not because of hate. <clears throat> it is because of love. If hell is a real place, and it is, would it be loving of the Lord not to tell us about it? He tells us about it because hell is a real place and because he loves us and wants to save us from it. If I may, <clears throat> if you will bear with me a little bit longer, I'd like to read a hymn, the words of a hymn. I won't sing it for you. 
called eternity. Eternity, time soon will end. Its fleeting moments pass away. That's everything going in the box again. O sinner, say, where wilt thou spend eternity's unchanging day? Eternity is forever. Shalt thou the hopeless horror see of hell for all eternity? Eternity, O dreadful thought, for thee, a child of Adam's race, if thou shouldst in thy sins be brought to stand before the awful face from which the heaven and earth shall flee, the throned one of eternity. What will it be like to stand before God and have to answer for all your sins? Eternity, but Jesus died. Yes, Jesus died on Calvary. Behold him, thorn-crowned, crucified, the spotless one made sin for thee. O sinner, haste, for refuge flee, he saves, and for eternity. Tonight may be thy latest breath, thy little moment here be done. Eternal woe, the second death awaits the grace-rejecting one. Thine awful destiny foresee, time ends, and then eternity. Folks, it's a limited time awful. Okay, I promised you four. I have 15 minutes for three more. Four examples of what is God's will for you. The first one I didn't name, but it was get saved. God's will for you? Get saved. No better way of spending your time now for eternal returns on your investment. Get saved. The second one I have I call get with the program. In Matthew 28, we're told, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That, those were the last verses in uh, the book of Matthew, also known as the Great Commission. And uh, <clears throat> the message here might be summarized in the words of the, of the uh, song, was saved, saved to tell others of the man of Galilee, saved, saved to live daily for the Christ of Calvary, saved Saved to invite you to his salvation free. We're saved, saved, saved by his blood for all eternity. God saves you with the purpose that you will now go and tell somebody else so that they believing the gospel can also be saved. <clears throat> it's part of God's program. So God in his design for the salvation of man includes you and he includes me. He wants us to be part of it. He's the one who is responsible to save. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand against it. But he wants to use you and he wants to use me to share the gospel with people so that he can use us and through us save people. What a way of using our time now for eternal rewards. Think of God using you to save a soul. I said earlier that people die not because of the lack of God's provision, but because of lack of interest in being saved. And that's true, but there's another possible cause of death, and that is ignorance. They may have never heard that Jesus died for their sins, and God has made a way for them to go to heaven. 
right? And that's where you and I come in. We have the opportunity to share with others and tell them what God has done to save them. Now, we should look more carefully at these verses and realize that we're not only talking about sharing the gospel and somebody being saved. That's part of it. We're actually told to make disciples. Making disciples actually means to make students or make followers of Christ. <clears throat> and uh, he, uh, he explains it in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So there's a teaching that God has passed to the apostles, the disciples, the first disciples, the apostles, and they're supposed to take that teaching and pass it to those that they've reached with the gospel. And remember, they told those people to do all the things that Christ has told them, which means now they're commanded to pass it on. There's this uh, picture here of a baton. I think most of you are familiar with relay races. In relay races, you have uh, several people running in a row, like uh, say 100 yards or 400 yards, and then they'll pass it to the next person, and that person will have to get the baton and keep running, and they'll have to pass it to the next person in line. And I heard a sermon recently where someone used this as an illustration for the Christian life or making disciples. God has given us his teaching, really the apostles, and they passed it on to the next generation. And that generation is supposed to pass it on to the next. Now, you and I are supposed to be part of this program. God doesn't just want us to be saved. He wants us to become disciples or followers of Christ. And that means... We have to receive the baton, all this body of knowledge, and we then need to pass it on to the next generation. When the church is not doing well, whose fault is it? When the baton falls on the ground, whose fault is it? Is it the person who passed it, or is it the person that was catching it? I don't know. Right? It could be either one. It's probably both. When the church is not doing well, the baton was not passed properly. Now, you can't necessarily blame it on the younger generation. It could be the older generation that didn't do a good job passing it on. But the point is, each and every one of you is supposed to be part of this program if you're saved, which means you need to be discipled, and you need to be discipling. Each of us needs to have a pull in our life and a Timothy in our life. If you've been saved and you've never been discipled, you're breaking the chain. If you've been discipled, but you're not discipling anybody else, you're breaking the chain. Get with the program. You need to be discipled. You need to be discipling others. That is God's plan of salvation for the ages. Be part of that program. Redeem your time. All right. Running out of time here, I have two more. Next one I have is get in shape. <clears throat> uh, a friend of mine shared with me a verse about how important it is for me to exercise physically. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourselves toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So the words this person was focusing on is bodily exercise profits a little. And, uh, you know, I, I need physical exercise. Physical exercise will make me healthier, will make me stronger. There's more things I will be able to do with this body if I get in shape, if I exercise my body. Now, that's good, but that's not the most important thing in this passage. The most important thing in this verse is to exercise yourself toward godliness. God wants you to get in a godly shape. He wants you to become like God. We read it in Ephesians 5.1. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. God actually wants us to become like him. And uh, this is something we're involved with. Often we think that, uh, well, being holy, being holy, me being holy. Well, 
It'll happen one day in heaven. In heaven, I'll be holy. So let's not worry about it now, right? It'll happen later. <clears throat> God wants us to happen now. Or I might say, well, being holy, being holy, well, that's God's work, right? I can't really do anything about that. God is the one who has to change me. Well, I have news for you. God wants you to participate in that work. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We shy away from words that talk about, about work and salvation, right? Because salvation is not by works. But here we're told that God wants us to work out your own salvation. What does it mean? It means the work that God is doing in my life and has done in my life, he wants me to work it out. He wants it to show. He wants holiness to come out in my life. I am part of that work. Now, it does say that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. But he wants me to be part of the program. He wants me to participate. I have personal responsibility to exercise in godliness. And... Uh, he talks about the fact that it benefits or profits, not just in this life. So if I do it, I get to enjoy the abundant life that Christ has for me in this life. But it also says, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. We often think that uh, you know, God is kind of stingy with his rewards. He'd only give me a reward in heaven if I like, lead someone to Christ or I run this great evangelistic crusade or something like that. And I think the reason we think that is that's the way we are, right? If I have something that I think is a great reward and I want to encourage people to try to get this reward, I ask you to achieve something and I set the bar pretty high, right? Because I only have so much to give. If I set the bar down here, you're all going to get it and I'll be out of rewards. But God is not like that. He doesn't have any limitation on how many rewards to give. And so exercising godliness, living a godly life, you don't have to lead the person to Christ to get a reward. You just need to exercise in godliness. Do what God wants you to do in a difficult situation. It could be as simple as being faithful at work, working as unto the Lord. It could be uh, as simple as loving my wife or uh, being submissive to my husband if I'm a wife. Simple things, doing things that we know God wants us to do, God rewards us for those things. That's investing in eternity. Last one. So we had get saved, get with the program, get in shape. The last one, preacher, get to the point. <laughs> Can anyone tell me what is the shortest verse in the Bible in Greek? Now, you don't have to tell me in Greek. Just tell me in the Greek which is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jake. Ah, cheater. He's <laughs> <laughs> trying to help the preacher get to the point. All right. Yes, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. One word in the Greek. Usually we'll say Jesus wept. Well, that's actually... Two words in the Greek. Actually, I think it may be three words in the Greek. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Sharon's been working on winning Benaiah. He's a year and a half. We want it to be done with the winning. For those of you who not know what winning means, it means to get him to not need to nurse anymore. And uh, no, not always easy. And finally, we got there about two weeks ago just before he turned one and a half, the latest of all our children to be weaned. And, uh, but there was something that he missed. You know, he no longer needed the milk, but he still missed that personal quality time with mom. So he would stay up in his bed after his brother fell asleep, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, maybe getting to 10 o'clock, you know, and sometimes crying. So, you know, Sharon, took him to uh, the living room for a rocker and kind of held him there. And, uh, you know, I came by also, lent my uh, 
moral support, and he just started saying, Mama, he would sign, we taught him to sign, Dada. And he had the happiest smile on his face. And to him, it was just joy to be with his father and to be with his mother. He needed nothing else. And you know what? That's what God wants out of us more than anything else is just to rejoice in him. Matt uh, read in the Breaking of Bread the verse from Habakkuk. When everything is going wrong, and Habakkuk says, yet will I rejoice in the God of my salvation. If my one-and-a-half-year-old son thinks that I am reason enough to rejoice, I think we have reason to rejoice in God in all circumstances. As I arrived in church today, my daughter asked me, are we late or are we early? And I said, we're early. We're here about 15 minutes before 9. And uh, she said, time is precious. And I asked her, why? Why is time precious? And uh, to her, time was precious because she loved sitting in the breaking of bread, writing stories and drawing pictures on her notebook. So that's for her why time is precious. <clears throat> I had the last picture there. Our time is precious to God. Bible says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How are you spending the commodity of time? Is it inside the box or is it outside the box? My hope is that the result of listening to this message is that you will be spending your time outside of the box and put it in the vaults of eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made it possible for us to do things on earth that are of eternal value. And uh, we pray here, Lord, is if there anybody who hasn't yet come to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, which is eternal life, we pray that they might come into that knowledge today. And we pray for the rest of us, Lord, that know you and could often stumble into the traps of this world and spend our time in frivolous ways that do not count for eternity. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.